Hello, and welcome to Crimes and Witch Demeanors, the paranormal podcast where we use primary and archival resources to find the truth behind your favorite ghostly tales. I'm your host and lovable librarian, Joshua Spellman. I am back, and as you may have noticed, or not have noticed, depending on how observant and how anxious you are for this podcast to come out every week, there was no episode last week, and for that, I apologize. I had a little bit of a sinus infection, and I was so congested, and my brain was afogged, and I wasn't able to record. But I'm back today, and I actually have some exciting news. So there's some case updates, I guess you would call them, some updates on some of the stories that we've done. And I just want to kind of go over them with you because I feel like you're a big part of these developments. So that's cool. So an update on episode one, The Legend of the Pigman. With some help, I was able to uncover the original pictures that were removed from that PDF where a lot of the story comes from. Allegedly, the pictures were removed from the PDF because of privacy concerns for the family. But this is definitely not the case. Um, I did some, you know, sleuthing and reverse image searching and discovered where these photos were originally from and who they were of. And they turn out to be of a man named Bill, the three-eyed man, Dirks, who was married to a Mildred Dirks, the alligator-skinned woman. They were circus performers and none of the details line up at all. And it turns out that they mainly lived their life in the South. But the author of that document definitely lifted a lot of these people's lives for the story of the Pigman, which is very strange, including details of people like Theodore the Boxer, who acted as a mentor. It's really interesting stuff. Um, I don't know who decided to make this a legend of the Pigman, but it's kind of the version that is now told because it's been on the internet. But none of those details are really present in like the oral history of the area. Um, when I grew up, I did not hear that version of the story, but that's kind of just what's known now. And it kind of serves as an example is how like there's this one prominent source that people think this is the source of the story, has all these historical facts, it must be true, and now that's kind of taken as fact as a legend. But regardless, the other legend isn't true either, but I digress. Another more exciting news, this podcast is actually getting a citation in an article, which is super exciting. Uh, It's just a small town paper in America's Georgia, and if you've been listening for a while, you might be able to piece together why. So Dr. Evan Kutzler, I hope I said that correctly, teaches history at Georgia's Southwestern State University and is going to be using part of my article to talk about the Windsor Hotel and highlight the racism that ghost tourism in the South kind of perpetuates, which is a topic that in the South no one really wants to address, including a lot of people in America's Georgia and, you know, that community. So I'm really happy that my podcast is going to be able to help highlight this important issue. It's going to be published in the America's Times Recorder, so if you live in America's, keep an eye out. So he's done some of his own additional research, and he's used some of mine, and he's had interviews with the current hotel owners, so I'm really curious to see what he puts together. So I'm not sure how you can access that. It's probably not online, but uh, I'm excited. And we have one last update. I know this is a lot of updates. Uh, The Boyd's Historical Society in Maryland actually reached out to me on Twitter about the Winderborn episode and pretty much just said that they agree with my assessment of the oral history and the historic preservation report and that there's actually a potential buyer for the house now. There's actually an article on it, which is really exciting because there's like the prospect that this beautiful mansion, this really unique piece of property could be restored, but then the new owner, the new buyer doesn't seem to be really interested in doing any of that. He's more interested in the land and the property for its drinking water, which is very interesting. And that's kind of where this problem lies. There's a lot of negotiations happening there between him and the water authority. And it's this whole big thing. So if you want to Google it, just Google like Winderborn Mansion, 
sold or something, and you can find it. But I digress. Today's episode is really interesting, and there's some more paranormal stories attached to it, which I think a lot of our uh, episodes have been kind of lacking. I feel like every time I investigate a ghost story, it's hard to find any actual concrete stories about hauntings and not just like an amalgamation of just like generic things like, ooh, I felt a chill. But today we're heading over to North Dakota to learn about a ghost that haunts the Harvey Public Library. The internet sources and Wikipedia and Murderpedia and all these articles that you find online about the murder that happened at Harvey Public Library are really shallow, and you don't really see how gruesome it is and some of the more interesting details until you really dig into the historic sources. So I'm just going to tell you the story as it's typically told in online circles, and then afterwards we're going to get in the gritty details and uncover the real story of the ghost of Sophia Eberlin. Harvey, North Dakota, population 1,783, is not home to much. Under the attractions portion of their website, it lists the public pool, local movie theater, and its public library. Beneath Harvey Public Library's small-town charm and its foundation, it has buried a tragic past. When the library was built in 1990, no one expected the structure to be haunted. However, strange things began to happen there from the moment that it opened its doors. Some things were subtle, like the lights flickering, or books that would go missing, and then reappear days later. A chill in the librarian's office, no matter how hot the weather. These things could be easily explained by drafts or everyday library occurrences. However, some events were not able to be explained away by the mundane. One morning, when opening the library, the librarians noticed a computer was on. When they approached it, the screen was displaying a giant letter S in a font that didn't exist. They tried to restart it and turn it off, but nothing worked except unplugging it. And this never happened again, and they were never able to locate the font on the computer. Another time, Stephine, a librarian, was closing up for the night, and went to turn off the lights in the entryway. But they wouldn't turn off. She tried the switch over and over and over again to no avail. Determined to turn them off so that she could leave, Stephine went to the main breaker and switched the power off. All the equipment turned off, all the lights went out, except for those in the front entryway. Frustrated and a little spooked, Stephine left them that way and went home. After this incident, the librarians had many electrical issues. The librarians had electricians come to the library and try and fix the issue, but no source could ever be found, and to this day, 31 years later, they still cannot find a cause. As strange things kept happening, it was speculated the library might be haunted. But by whom? It was newly built. After some time, the librarians discovered a possible cause for this strange activity. It turns out that before the library was built, a house stood on the property. When the library was built, the house was not demolished, but simply moved a few blocks down, which in such a small locality like Harvey is technically across the city. It was in this house that a gruesome murder took place, and it would make sense that the ghost of the victim, Sophia Eberlein, may haunt the library. The librarian's office, where there's a constant chill, is the same exact spot where the old master bedroom would have been, and where Sophia was murdered. 
Sophia Eberlein was a German from Russia immigrant, born in 1889, who emigrated to the United States. She married her first husband, Hugo Eberlein, a well-known businessman in Harvey. And they lived happily together, and she had two daughters, Lillian and Alice. Sadly, Hugo died in 1928, and Sophia remarried a plumber by the name of Jacob Bentz. Their marriage didn't last long, and on October 2, 1931, Jacob Bentz bludgeoned Sophia with a hammer in their bedroom. Thinking that he could cover it up, Bentz loaded her body into his car, lit a fire, and sent it over a ravine. Sophia's body was cremated in the process. Bentz told police that it was an accident and that Sophia was driving and lost control of the car. He had managed to escape through the window. The police believed his bogus story, and Bentz was never under any suspicion. That is, until Sophia's daughters came into town and noticed some strange things in the home, things that their mother would never have done. Feeling suspicious, the daughters contacted the authorities, and eventually Bentz caved under pressure and confessed to his crime. He was sent to prison, where he died in 1944. The house where the murder took place constantly struggled to be rented, and ironically is now owned by a plumber. I doubt that Sophia is happy that this new owner's profession matches that of her murderer, and perhaps that is why the home stands abandoned and boarded up. On that parcel of land, Sophia lets out all of her ghostly rage on the man who reminds her of her murderer before she floats down to the Harvey Public Library to relax and unwind. In an unplanned coincidence, the Harvey Public Library opened on the anniversary of Sophia's funeral. Perhaps that's why her spirit feels so at home there. It makes her feel welcome. Free from the shackles of her past, she is now free to roam the stacks and cause a little bit of mischief among the librarians and patrons of Harvey Public Library. So that's the story of Sophia, or as they call her at the library, Sophie and her ghost. Or is it? The murder is actually a lot more interesting, and I was actually hoping to find more information on Sophia because I think it's important to highlight the lives of the victims and kind of celebrate them, but it was really hard to find anything about her. In fact, all the articles that I found, I didn't find by searching for Sophia Eberlein. I found them by having to search for Jacob Bentz but she's still referred to either as Sophie Eberlein or Sophie Bentz, but her maiden name is actually Sophia Schmidt. One thing that did confuse me was that Sophia was a German from Russia immigrant, which sounds like a mouthful, and then she immigrated to the United States. So a German from Russia is a ethnic group. They are the German minority population in what is now modern-day Russia and Ukraine. They identify as German, however, they're technically Russian citizens. It's this really long and complicated history, but essentially they culturally identify as German, they speak German, uh, etc., etc., but they live in Russia. If you want to read about it, it's actually very fascinating, but I just, I couldn't go into detail about that. The murder, the murder and the ghosts Those are, are why we are here. So the online sources, like I said, don't really have a lot of details on the murder. They're very, very basic. 
Digging through newspapers, I was actually able to uncover Jacob Benz's written confession, which is really interesting, but the details of his confession do not match up with the actual facts of the murder, which I was also able to find a timeline for. So here is the confession that Jacob Benz wrote for the public that was published in the Bismarck Tribune. I, Jacob Benz, make this statement and confession in writing of my own free will and without any coercion and without any promise of nature whatsoever. That my wife and I had an argument about going to Fessenden at 1 a.m. That about 4 o'clock Friday morning on October 2nd, 1931, we got up and my wife wanted to go to Fessenden. I had a hammer in the bed with me. I slept on the inside. I hit my wife, Sophia Benz, on the head with the hammer more than once. I think it was two times. Then I got up and carried the dead body of my wife to the garage, and I put the dead body in the car. Then I went back into the house and cleaned up the bedroom. I took the pillowcase and the one sheet down to the basement and burned them. Then I took the one pillow and the bed blanket out of the car in the garage with the dead body. I got in the car and drove west to the section line and drove south to the straw pile on the free place. Then I took the blanket and pillow and burned them in the straw pile. Then I drove down the car to the place down the ditch where the burned car and body were found. I desire to enter a plea of guilty to the charge of murder in the first degree as alleged in the complaint filed against me. I'm sorry, some of that didn't sound like it made sense because that's how it was written by Jacob Betts. It just, his words. Anyways, this is how he claims the murder took place. And unfortunately, this is not at all how it went down. I find it really interesting that there was never any suspicion against Jacob Benz about this murder, when literally after he killed his wife, he took insurance policies out on the both of them. Not before, like, it wasn't premeditated in the fact that, you know, usually a killer would be like, you know, a couple months before I do this murder, I'm gonna, you know, take out this insurance policy. No, no, no. Jacob Benz was a plumbing idiot, is what he was. He killed his wife, and then he took out the insurance policy, but also these stupid cops, I'm sorry, in North Dakota, in Harvey, they didn't even think that was suspicious. The only reason why any suspicion ever fell on him was because Sophia's daughters came for the funeral, and when they came to the house, they noticed that some of the knickknacks and stuff were kind of out of place and also found some bloodstains in the bedroom. They were concerned and then contacted the police where Benz caved under pressure. So here I actually have the whole entire timeline outlined by the police after the investigation, after they eventually suspected him of murder, which I should have just gone with murder from the start, also published in the Bismarck Tribune. 1 a.m. Friday, Ben beat his wife over the head with a claw hammer while she was in bed and not while she was getting into bed as he claims. Also, side note, why did he have a hammer just in the bed with him? Like, what? Also, what got him so... Benced out of shape that he'd murdered his ad. And anyways, I digress. Let's just get back to the timeline. Between 1 and 5 a.m., Benz worked to remove evidence of the crime by washing the blood spot from the walls and taking bloodstained covers from the bed. 5 a.m., Benz phoned A.N. Beisker, Fessenden insurance man, asking that accident policies of $5,000 each be written for him and his wife. It's a very early phone call, I will say that. 5.30 a.m., Benz placed his wife in an automobile while apparently she was still alive and started out to finish the crime by burning the body. 5.45 a.m. Benz stopped a half a mile from the spot where the automobile was run into the ditch, placed the bloodstained clothing in a straw stack on the Ed Free farm, and set the stack afire. 6 a.m. Benz drove the car off the road into a ditch and then set the machine afire. 
Benz claims that he intended to commit suicide by driving into the ditch, but that he was not seriously injured, the machine catching fire after he crawled out of the wreckage. Authorities believe he fired the automobile after apparently driving slowly into the ditch. And I also will say that Benz had claimed before that he did not set the car on fire on purpose. It just happened to catch a blaze and burn the body in the evidence, which if he had already decided to burn the sheets in that haystack, he obviously had things to make a fire. So it kind of stands to reason that he then set the car on fire with his wife's body in it. I don't know. But the cops were like, that makes sense. At 6.13 a.m., Benz went to the Dominic Toussaint farm, one half mile from the scene, and asked for help. When he returned with Toussaint, the machine was ablaze, the woman's death appeared certain, and he was taken to a hospital. From this point, little developed while Benz was recovering at the hospital. From an injury to his hand, the accident story told by him was accepted. Notified of their mother's death, Mrs. Benz's two daughters, Lucille Eberline, 22, a student at the University of North Dakota, came to Fessenden Saturday. Another daughter, Alice, 18, a student at Union College, Nebraska, also arrived. The girls bear the name of Mrs. Benz's first husband, who died about three years ago. She married Benz April 17, 1930, four months after Benz's first wife died from cancer. Miss Eberline, by noticing the rearranged bedclothing in a manner which was not characteristic of her mother, gave the first clue that led to the theory of foul play. Belcher, Levine, and Kugel were summoned near midnight Sunday, and the investigation began. Osdort arrived early Sunday morning and took tests of blood on the floor and mattress and found that they were human stains. The claw hammer stained with blood was found and a dishpan used by Benz in scrubbing the floor was discovered. Stained with blood and human hair. The inquest was set for 9.30 a.m. Monday, and Benz appeared to tell his story. Authorities had in their possession information which indicated his guilt, but did not press Benz at the inquest, because they feared details might incite attempts on Benz's life by enraged friends of the dead woman. Benz told at the inquest how he and his wife started out for Fessenden to transact business there, but that on the way the automobile plunged into the ditch and caught fire. He recounted how he struggled to free himself and went to summon help at a nearby farmhouse. He told that, as coincidence, he had ordered accident policies before he and his wife started out for Fessenden. The article goes on to say, essentially, that he maintained his story until they were like, you know what, we actually have your bloody hammer full of her hair, and then he confessed. The funeral had happened that Sunday, though the body of Sophia wasn't actually in the funeral. They kept it at the corners in a vault, they said. Um, And eventually he was sent to prison where he died. Good in 1944. I also find it interesting that even in this article about, you know, this murder of Sophia Eberline, or Sophia Benz technically, though I wouldn't want to take my murderer's name uh, after the fact, that they still would never name Sophia Eberline by name in this article. They refer to her as the dead woman, which is just so bizarre. But then again, it was 1931. Though I will say I'm impressed that both of Sophia's daughters were at college or university. Very impressive for 1931. Good for them. I hope their lives turned out great and that they got the money from those policies, you know? So the ghost that haunts the public library is said to be Sophia or Sophie. And all of this comes from the first couple of librarians that, you know, started working at the library when it opened in 1990. However, librarians that are there now have said, quote, I've been here for four years and nothing has ever happened that can be attributed to Sophie. 
and it seems that nothing really happens. And there's also some discrepancies about where the uh, bedroom was. So there's a story that the librarian's office always had to chill in it because that's where the bedroom was where she was murdered before they moved the house. But other people say that the bedroom was in the furnace room before they moved the house. And yet other people also say that the bedroom was in the conference room (laughs) before they moved the house. So that just sounds like people saying like, oh yeah, this is where the bedroom was where she was murdered over and over again without any kind of evidence to substantiate it. And pretty much all of the stories that they tell about ghostly experiences can be explained away. I know there's one story where the librarian was like, I had this children's book that I used to tell story time every single week, and I always put it in the same place. But one day, I went to go get it, and it wasn't there. And me and the other librarians, we searched high and low and tore the shelves apart and couldn't find it. And then a week later, I came into the library and I found it. Sophia must have moved it. A, Sophia has better things to do than take your silly little children's book. You know, she she was brutally murdered. I don't think she cares to, you know, mess up your story time. If anything, she would like to be reading stories to these children. And then B, as a librarian, I can say that books going missing and then showing up is not an uncommon occurrence, especially if you're in a public library. Like, I've worked in special collections where I'm the only person touching these books and things go missing. And I'm the only hands that are usually on them, except for the one museum curator who would go into a rare books case and shuffle things around and take them, and I would have panic attacks when a book from the 17th century was suddenly missing. But I digress. In a public library, especially with children, things are being taken and moved around. Books are being put in the wrong spot all the time with no adherence to any kind of organizational system like the Dewey Decimal System. Kids don't know what a Dewey Decimal... Most adults don't know what a Dewey Decimal is. So these stories, uh, I just chalk them up to just regular library operations and faulty wiring. And the chills, I mean, drafts do happen. Maybe it is, Sophie. The one story that I do find interesting is that of, like, the computer screen with the font that didn't exist. Like, that's spooky-ooky, and it was an S for Sophia. So I do like that. Um, But I hope that Sophia's not just causing havoc for no reason on these poor Harvey public librarians. I hope that Sophia is resting in peace somewhere. She's in the great beyond because she deserves it. And I hope that Jacob Benz is rotting in hell. So again, uh, it turns out that the ghostly occurrences aren't that ghostly. I want to find a story that has some ghostly stuff. If you have any suggestions, let me know. And as always, don't sleep with a hammer in your bed. If you do plan on committing murder, maybe take those insurance policies out a couple months in advance. And as always, stay spooky. Bye. Ha 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 ha.